Thank you, Debbie. Laura, thank you for that last song. It took me right back to my high school days. An old Keith Green song way back there. Still, still a classic, though. I love it. I love it. Actually, you sang a couple of songs this morning that were my favorites. Thrive and, and Oh, Lord, You Beautiful. So, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah all that. So, and then uh, this morning, I apologize for the, the Hebrews uh, uh, four passages not being there. The Hebrews 10 passages, rather, not being there. Four passages, yeah. Not being there because um, um, I don't know what happened to that, but I thought you had it memorized. You could have you let him in the memory of it. Yes, you could have, but that's, yeah. Good save. Okay. Um, anyway, that passage will be coming up a little bit later, so we will, we will get to that in that. But if you have your Bibles, you can get them open to Acts chapter uh, 17. That's where we're going to be at um, this morning. And I've entitled this sermon, Our Owner's Manual. I'm going to explain a little bit about what I mean by that, because there could be a lot of misconceptions with that uh, as well. But if you buy something new, like a chainsaw, you get an owner's manual with this. And many of you know, perhaps, that back in September when we were on vacation, there were some folks uh, that decided they needed about $4,000 worth of tools that I had in my garage worse than I needed them. And so they kind of cleaned me out of it. And one of them was my chainsaw. And so I just finally bought a new one, and I, I got this owner's manual, and I kind of looked through it because, you know, the owner's manual tells me uh, what kind of mix I need to run the chainsaw, whether it's 50 to 1 or 40 to 1, whatever it is. It tells me how to sharpen the, the, the teeth on the chain right, you know, at this angle, not that angle. It tells you how to cut things right so you don't hurt yourself. It tells you what to be careful. It has all kinds of safety precautions and everything in it, right? And... It, so let me ask you this question. How many of you actually read an owner's manual when you get it with something? Six of you. Okay, you can all, you can all go. You can all go. So, okay. But, you know, most of the time we get, we get something new, and, you know, I kind of glance through the owner's manual and stuff, and it's like, I got, I got this new phone. Now, I didn't, I, I didn't buy this phone, but my old phone was kind of dying, and they said, okay, it's under warranty, and we're going to replace your phone with a new Samsung Galaxy S9. An $800 phone. I mean, I'm like, what are you, what are you giving me an $800 phone for? I'm like, you know, because the other one was like 200 whatever it was. I couldn't believe this. But did I read the owner's manual? No. I know how to use a cell phone. I don't ask for directions either when I'm trying to go somewhere. And so I have been discovering over the past uh, number of weeks and months as I've had this phone, um, new features that this phone has that I don't know how to shut off when it happens. This morning, the alarm goes off on my phone, has this nice little chime thing, and then this voice says, it's 6.45 a.m. And it was not my wife's voice. Yeah. There's, just, uh, there's all kinds of things like that, right? If we re and there's, there's probably a lot more this thing does that if I read the owner's manual and take the time to do it, I would know how to use that phone. I would know how to make it work better for me than it does. We have an owner's manual that God has given us to help us understand how we're supposed to function. How is it we are supposed to, to um, live in this world that we're in? Now, let me say this. There's a big difference between the kind of owner's manual I'm talking here with the chainsaw or the cell phone or whatever 
and the kind of owner's manual I'm talking about that God has. Because the difference is this. I bought that chainsaw. I got the cell phone. I own those. Okay? We do not own God. He owns us. And that owner's manual that he has given us is, is his revelation to us to say, hey, here's how you're supposed to work. Here is the proper angle. If you sharpen things, you'll be able to cut through life in this world easily. Here is how you can stay safe. Here is, here is how you can escape the evil corruption that's in this world. I am giving it to you because you belong to me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says that we belong to God, that we are a people that belong to him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we read this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We, we have been bought by our owner. He has bought us back when we, didn't, we just were destined for nothing but just hell, period, and life eternally apart from him. He sent his son, Jesus, to rescue us and to buy us back from that, and he owns us. But he didn't leave us alone. He just could have rescued us from that and said, okay, have fun. You're on your own. Figure it out. He didn't do that. He gave us our manual, our owner's manual, and said, here is my revelation to you on how you can live. Here is how you can escape the corruption in this world. The owner's manual we have teaches us about our relationship with God and what that needs to look like, as well as how to live in this sin-sick world. It is called the Bible. So let's take a look at our passage this morning that, that's going to demonstrate kind of two groups of people who held maybe perhaps some different views about the supremacy of scriptures in, in their life and in, in their work, and then what we can draw from that. Let me set the scene for you, first of all. In Acts chapter 16, before we get into our passage, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and they're preaching gospel. And the... the Jewish religious leaders there don't like so much about what they're saying because the kind of message Paul is preaching is this, that Jesus was the suffering servant Messiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53. He was the one to come and rescue us from our sins and then he would be raised from the dead. And they didn't like that message because number one, that message did not fit the kind of picture they had for the kind of deliverance that they wanted. They didn't want deliverance from their sins. They wanted deliverance from Rome. They wanted a political Messiah, not a suffering servant Messiah. And so that message was, was not making any sense to them because that's not what they wanted. They were trying to interpret Paul's message through the way they felt rather than what the scriptures had to say. And so they grab Silas and Paul and they beat him without even a trial. And they put him in jail. And it says along about midnight they're singing hymns to the Lord. Amazing, when something miracle is about to happen, there's usually singing accompanying it. And then it says a great earthquake shook, and the doors the jail cells come open, and it's pitch black. Jailer that's there, the Philippian jailer, he can't see what's going on. He's assuming all the prisoners escaped, and that was an automatic death sentence for him. And so he begins to, he's going to commit suicide. He knows he's going he's to be there, and he's going to draw his knife, he's going to kill himself. And Paul hauls out and says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Now there's integrity for you. Paul and Silas have this opportunity to walk around. We go, no, that's not the right thing to do. 
the right thing to do is stay here and do this. And, and Paul's probably sensing an opportunity here. Who knows? And God's moving him in this. And, and then the jailer and his whole household come to faith in Christ because of that act that Paul and Silas did and the rest of the inmates. Then the magistrates want to release Paul and Silas, so they send a delegate to go tell them, hey, you guys are free, and Paul and Silas say, no, we're not leaving yet. You need to let those officials that put us in here come and tell us that because we're Roman citizens. And the magistrates went, uh-oh, because you see, it was illegal for them to beat, much less try, a Roman citizen. Only Romans could try Roman citizens. So the Jewish authorities had overstepped their bounds. So they, they get Paul and Silas together and they say, um, would you guys please leave? I mean, we're sorry we did this everything, but could you just quietly leave the city and go on? You know, this, we're, we're sorry. And it tells us that they left. And this is where we pick up our story in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. It's what I'm calling the Thessalonian experience. Paul and Silas are coming to Thessalonica. It's a city that's on a major highway. It's probably about 200,000 people. It's full of all kinds of things in terms of morality and political things and idolatry and, and just all kinds of, of, of garbage stuff. It's also a major trade center, and there was lots of people moving through in this. And so this is where Paul and Silas are moving to next is Thessalonica. And this is what we read. Follow along, beginning at verse 1. When Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis, I can't pronounce that, I'm sorry, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and raise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined. Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters in the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's creed, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Look what is happening here. They go into Thessalonica, and Paul does what he always does first. First, he goes to the Jews in the synagogue, and he shares. And, and there's not really much of a response there. Then he goes into the, the city marketplace, and, and there's more people that respond, and some prominent people respond to this message, and, and they want to give their lives over to Jesus. And, and, and the Jewish leaders don't like this because they're losing control of the people. They're, they're losing perhaps maybe their ways of making money or whatever else it was. They're, they're becoming jealous of this because Paul is apparently moving people more to, to a following than, than they were doing. Maybe they were reminded about, they heard about what happened in Philippi, and they didn't want to go through that again as well. As I said, Thessalonians was not a very moral city. It had all kinds of immorality in it. Perhaps some of the messages that Paul was preaching 
that challenged their perspective on morality. They, they wanted to live in morality, and they wanted the, the scriptures to be able to affirm that how they were living was okay. And Paul maybe comes along, Silas, and says, no, this is not okay. This is not something that God is pleased with. They were most likely very subjective in their discernment of truth that the Thessalonians would, would hear something and they would decide, okay, does this make me feel good or not? If it makes me feel good, it must be right. If it makes me feel bad, it must be wrong. We know this because there were two, written, uh, two letters written to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes to them after he's left after this visit. He writes to them about the coming times, about Jesus returning again, and about the things that they need to be doing while they're preparing for Jesus' return. And at the end of that passage, the end of that book, in, in chapter 5, verse 21, we read this. Cast everything, he writes to the Thessalonians, cling to what is good, shun what is evil. Because apparently they didn't do that. They didn't test everything. So he has to write to them to tell them, do this. Don't just be taken by what you think is good inside, but take that and, and compare it against the scripture and test it. And if it matches it, then hold on to it. But if it doesn't, throw it away. Don't have anything to do with it. He has to write a second letter to them in 2 Thessalonians because, as the human spirit always likes to do, it does a pendulum shift. And so he tells the Thessalonians, okay, you need to be ready for Jesus' return. He's coming back. He's doing all these things. And so they went from here of basically not regarding it at all and testing things to way over here of saying, Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Let's quit work. Let's just get lazy. Let's not do anything. Let's just wait for the return. And Paul writes 2 Thessalonians to them to tell them, uh, you guys didn't get that right. You're supposed to be found waiting, watching, and working until he returns. That's my summary of 2 Thessalonians. Okay? That's the bottom line. You need to be about doing this. And, and so he's trying to, to encourage them to test things against Scripture. Apparently they weren't doing that up until this point. And so when Paul visits them in Thessalonica, that's why they were having such a hard time. They weren't testing the things that Paul was saying. They weren't looking at it to see, is this something God's really saying? They weren't open to that. Paul comes along and tells them, hey, we have a Savior. It's Jesus. This is what he's done. And there's an owner's manual. It's the Scriptures. Here, let me tell you about them. And they did not like hearing that. So Paul and Silas had to leave town. And that takes us to the next part of the passage in Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 16. is what I call the Berean experience. Now let's look at this in contrast to what happened in Thessalonica. Here's what we read, beginning at verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and exclaimed the scriptures to them, uh, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there, too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Paul is preaching the same message 
in Berea as he preached in Thessalonica. Now, Berea was a little different city. Where Thessalonica was a major city, it was on a major highway, Berea was quite a bit smaller. It was on an off-beaten track. It wasn't too far from Berea, but it was, it was not, in the, not the same kind of hustle and bustle that was in Thessalonica. But nonetheless, the Jewish leaders caught wind that Paul and Silas were there. They caught wind that many people were following this Jesus. They caught wind of the fact that the Bereans were actually looking at the scriptures to see if these things were true and then following them. And they didn't like it. And so they sent the same rabble that they got all worked up in Thessalonica to Berea. It wasn't the people in Berea, per se, that were causing all this trouble. It was the people coming from out of town causing the trouble. And look at the description of the Bereans that Paul gives here. He said they were more noble than the Thessalonian folks. What does noble mean? It means they were more open. They were more of integrity. They were people who, who were not prejudiced against the Scripture, if you will. They were more open to what Paul was having to say, but they didn't stop there. They didn't just go, okay, well, that sounds good. Maybe we'll follow that. No, they took what he said, and then they, they went back to the Scripture and said, Paul's saying this. Scripture says that, oh, guess what? These, these harmonize. These work together. It proves it. There's every reason to believe that as they found things that Paul would have taught that were not true, they would have jettisoned those. That's why they were noble. They tested the things they were taught. They were probably a little more objective about manners than the Thessalonians were. They didn't go with just how it made them feel. They go with what was right. And they eagerly did this every single time. They didn't do it begrudgingly. Look, and again, look where that trouble comes from. The trouble comes from another city. It isn't even the people in Berea. It comes from Thessalonica. They knew that he, they, they knew that he was preaching Christ. They knew he was preaching the scriptures. They knew he was preaching the word of God, but they didn't care. Those leaders in the rabble and, the, and they came from Thessalonian, Thessalonica, they wanted to have their way. They wanted to make the scripture conform. They wanted to make all preaching, make them feel good about themselves. Because if the preaching makes you feel bad, we call that conviction, they didn't like that. And so we need, to, we need to stay and test that. What is the difference between these two groups is primarily this. The difference between the two of them is their stand on the supremacy of Scripture. To the Bereans, Scripture was important, and it was the, it, it was the measuring stick to which all teaching was to be measured. It was absolute truth. There were absolutes there, and they could judge all things by that. The Thessalonians, they were on their own. It was all about how they felt. They did not see the scriptures as a final authority, an inerrant authority. They apparently did not see this. They didn't, the Bereans understood perhaps what, what Paul would be, Yeah, was somebody singing and the earthquake hit? I don't know. Okay. I'm going to worry about it. The only thing would have been better if I was standing under that, you know what I mean? Been good. Okay. We definitely have to send video of that to Bill. That's going to be so good. <laughs> 
Okay. The Bereans, I think, understood the concepts, like that Peter would write later in 1 Peter 1.21, when he said, no interpretation of prophecy has come by the prophet's own hand, but men moved by the Spirit of God. Write these things down. That, that they, he also understood, perhaps, what we read in our responsive reading of 2 Timothy 3, where all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. They were putting, the Bereans were putting that into practice. It seems the Thessalonians didn't care about doing that because they wanted what they wanted and they didn't want anything to stand in that way. One group stood on the foundation of absolute truth while the other stood on the winds of change blown about by the wisdom of the men or culture or society they were in. And scripture tells us this is going to happen. Scripture tells us that even though folks know God, they're going to deny him as God. Take a, look at, take a look at this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what we made known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But in their thinking, they became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. So what does this all mean to us? Preaching and living out the message of the gospel and being in a living relationship with God may not always be popular in our culture. In this culture today, they may look at us and they may call us fools. Pastor Sean started his, his um, uh, series in 1 Corinthians and last Sunday's message was about being fools for Jesus. Not being foolish. But, but from the world's perspective if we follow God they say that's foolish because God is, is dead. He's long gone. And, and, and in this society of humanism and hedonism and narcissism and all, and all of these other isms that are here today man wants to be the center of it all. And, and to say that there is a God means then we have to say that there is something that he has to say about how we need to live and how we need to behave and we need to be in submission to that. So the easy thing to do, get rid of God. Get rid of the word. Get rid of those things. And so it's not always easy to do the things that God wants to take a stand for him. It's not popular in our culture, but it will be the noble thing. It will be the right thing. It will be the true thing. Scripture tells us that we are going to have these kind of problems. People are going to take a look at the way we're behaving and living for Jesus, and they're going to say, that's kind of weird. And they're going to have kind of different names for that. Take a look at this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. 
For you spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Something's changed. You're no longer living that way and now because you're following Jesus, and now you have a moral authority that you are submitting to. See, the world today doesn't want to live with a moral authority, our culture. They want to have freedom but they want to have freedom without form, okay? Let me explain the, the difference here. Freedom with form means this. We are free in Christ. There is a form. God's word establishes the parameters and says, here's how you need to live in this world in relationship with me to escape the corruption that this world is. You can be free from the tyranny of sin. You can be free from all of the stuff that comes your way this way. And you can rest in me in the middle of this chaos. Because if you follow me, you truly are free. But there's a form. Our world today wants a form without freedom, which leads to chaos. Form without freedom, excuse me, freedom without form simply means this. I want what I want, and any way I want to get it is okay. And there are no rules. The problem with that kind of freedom is this. My freedom without rules is going to allow me to go and do this way and I can end up infringing on Debbie's freedom. And so now I'm stepping on her because there's no form. There's nothing that is right. There's nothing that's moral. There's, there's no standard. And that's why it's, we, we see that today where all of a sudden life is not sacred anymore because there's nothing to judge it by. Get rid of God and get rid of the things that are there. All of a sudden there is no standard to submit to to say life is precious because God created it. Marriage is not sacred because there is no God and there's nobody to answer to. Therefore, God didn't create marriage. God didn't create one man, one woman. So, hey, if you want to be um, married as a homosexual couple, a lesbian couple, that's okay because there is no God. There is no morality. You don't like what gender you were born? No problem. We can fix that. You were born a woman and you don't like that and you want to become a man because you just feel that would be the right thing? Hey, we'll, we'll make you a man. And then 15 years after that, if you really want to go back to being a woman, we'll fix that too. When there is no form, freedom turns into chaos. Our world also confuses agreement and acceptance. They think unless we agree with them, we do not accept them. That if I do not agree that my two nieces are okay to be lesbian and I tell them that God's word says this is not something that honors him they think that I don't accept them and I don't love them because I don't agree with their choice and the world confuses agreement and acceptance my wife and I do not always agree She says she's always right. And I say, yes, you are. After 35 years of marriage, you know the right thing to say. But that means we don't, just because we disagree, it does not mean we don't accept each other. 
we don't stop loving each other because we disagree or we might not like each other for a little bit, but we don't stop accepting and loving each other. And that is, that is a concept that for some reason, like the reason I believe is sin, is foreign to the world. I just don't get it. That we can't disagree with them and still accept and love them. They'll call us bigoted and narrow-minded, old-fashioned, whatever other thing you want to come out there when we, when we confront them with the truth. And let me say something about confronting the truth here so I don't get it. When we hold out the word of life to people and confront them with truth, we must do so in love. Not judgment. Not holier than thou. We need to keep humility in there, keep love in there. Because these are people that Christ died for. They're people that he created. They're people that he has a plan for, that he wants to rescue out of darkness and bring them into his marvelous light. Remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 6? Who's our struggle against? It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, the principalities, and powers, and unseen forces, and the dark places that are behind these people. That's where our struggle lies. Not the individuals that are ensnared by that. Let us remember that. If we're going to preach this message, we must not compromise it. We must not bend the meaning of Scripture. Excuse me a minute. We must not bend the meaning of Scripture to fit the culture. This is called accommodation to culture. It's where the culture says, okay, we want abortion to be okay. We want same-sex marriage to be okay. We want this to be okay. And so we, the church can be tempted to take the Scripture that talks about God is God and he created a male and female and somehow bend it down to become something culture accepts and affirms their behavior. Rather than taking the culture and bringing it up to what God says and, hey, let's change our behavior to match what, what God's will is. Paul and Silas were charged with coming into Thessalonica and turning the world upside down. I submit to you the world was already upside down. Paul and Silas were coming and bringing a message to turn it right side up. And that's the way it is today. Our world is upside down and we need to, we need to get this thing right side up in so far as we can and continuing to follow God's leading and his, and his uh, conviction on each of us to do so. This accommodation of the scripture has been around since Genesis 3 in the fall. Remember that little encounter? Satan saying, did God really say you couldn't eat of that tree? Because he did say you could eat anything in the garden, but did he really say you couldn't eat that one? And then what happened? Eve's looking at it. Adam was there too, gals, so they're both culpable. I'll pick on Eve. She's looking at the fruit, and she sees it's good for food. Hmm, maybe God didn't mean we couldn't eat of that. And all of a sudden, the way she felt about it determined what God had really said. Just like my chainsaw was not created to run on straight gas, it runs on mix, because if I run on straight gas, it burns up. won't be any good for anything. You and I were not created to run on our own wisdom. We were created to run on God's wisdom created to run by his Holy Spirit in us, revealing that wisdom and moving us through this life, escaping all the garbage around us. This is the great evangelical disaster, folks, is the accommodation 
of the scriptures to a world spirit. The world spirit meaning the world wants to do what it wants to do without any constraints, without, without any form, with total freedom. And they want the Bible to support that. They want us as the church to support that. 35 years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote this book called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And basic premise of the book is what I said. He says the great evangelical disaster is the accommodation of the scriptures to the world. Now, when he wrote this book in 1984, I read it then. And I thought Schaefer was kind of off his rocker to some degree. Because a lot of the things that Schaefer was talking about that could happen if the church did this or that or didn't stand for this or stand for that, I thought, we're not ever stupid enough to do that. We people are smarter than that. You know, if I'd have read my Bible, I would have realized that wasn't true. Right? Because it tells us, a passage we read in Romans 1, tells us the world's going to go from bad to worse as people continue to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for things in the form of corruptible man. I've read that book four times since I bought it. I read it once when I first bought it in 84. I read it again in the 90s. I read it in the early 2000s. And I read it again four days later, four days ago, cover to cover. Because I can't, I'm struck by the accuracy which Schaefer saw how things were going to be unfolding. God was speaking through the man, and we as a church, overall, I believe, failed to listen. Because we have come so much further in the area of immorality and in the area of devaluation of life and, 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 and the, the authority and inspiration of Scripture than I, than I think Schaefer even maybe perhaps felt we'd ever get. The message of the Bible does not turn the world upside down, but rather it pleads with it to get right side up. The message of the Bible is this. It is Jesus Christ and how we can have a relationship with God through him. That relationship that God originally created us for back in Genesis that was destroyed by the fall, and then God sending his son to die for us on a cross and raise again from the dead so that we might have life and have it to the full. And that relationship with him. If we hope to have this world take this message seriously, then we must be willing to live it out even if they call us fools. We need to live this message out. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter writes about our position, and he uses the word here for call out ones, it's the word ecclesia, which is talking about the church. Follow along as I read. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He goes on to talk about uh, the persecution everything is going to be surrounding him, but he says to his, Peter does to his reader, stand firm. You've been called out of this life, and now you are walking in the Spirit, in the power there. Live it out. James has something to say to this as well in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Do not merely listen to the Word and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have learned, but doing it, 
they will be blessed in what they do. We must strive to conform our lives to our manual, not to the pattern of this world. That means being in a living and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. That means being uh, submissive to the, to the will and, and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives because of that relationship. It is standing on the supremacy of Scripture and understanding and embracing the fact that it is God, it's God's divine revelation to us. It is not something made up and something mythological. It is God's revelation of himself to us and about how we can live in this world apart from the corruption that is here. It is our owner's manual. And we need to test everything we encounter by that word. Moving toward a conclusion here. How do we do this? It's good that we come Sunday morning and we hear messages like this, but how can we put into practice as we look at these two groups, the Bereans and the Thessalonians, and their view of Scripture, I hope we all want to be more like the Bereans. That we want to take these things that come into our life and we want to say, God, what do you have to say about this? What, what, what do I need to embrace and what do I need to abstain from? What do I need to flee from? Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 also give us some other ideas to help in this journey. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's wonderful that we come here on Sunday morning and you hear me expound the word, or Pastor Sean expound the word, but are we taking this and are we looking deeper? Or are we going back to the scripture and saying, okay, this matches? Or, um, no, I got some questions here. Paul invited his readers, the Thessalonians, to do that. We're inviting you to do that. Go back to the scripture. See if these things are true. Don't, don't, don't just check your brains out, but, but engage. One of the ways that we do this is through our connection groups. Our connection groups go through and, and, and they meet at various times throughout the week, but pretty much all the groups take the sermon that is preached on, on Sunday morning and they go back through and, and they look at the sermon, dig deeper into the scripture to see what is there. Now, the really cool thing about this is not only do we get deeper into the scripture and learn more about this, and you could do that on your own, but when you're in a group of people, their gifts and abilities and insights and how the Spirit's working through them, you get to, to glean from. And you get to see things that, that, are, that are different than perhaps even you thought. And, and can be a, a very a very educational experience, if you will. Connection groups give us a chance to practice what the Bereans did. And so I, I, I point that out to you because that's one of the things that we do. But there's an opportunity for you. You can join those. We're going to have some time next month where we're going to be highlighting our, our groups again and, and maybe starting a couple of others. And, but this is something that, that we find to be very helpful. And, and, and as we met with the leaders yesterday, they're sharing their testimony. What's going on in the group was awesome. The stuff that was happening there, it's people dig deeper into the word. Gives us a chance to test these things. We need to make sure that the message that we are saying, the message we're preaching, is not a dumbed-down version to the world spirit. It's not accommodation. It needs to be truth and absolute truth and the way God has revealed it. Because here's the thought for you. 
when we share a lost message, and that is what a message is, it's been dumbed down and it's, and it's been gutted of all of, its, uh, all, all of its importance that God has put in it. When we share a lost message with a lost culture or society, they are still going to be lost. Just because we make them feel good about themselves doesn't mean they're going to be found. Now, sometimes we share the truth and people feel good about the truth. Yes, that happens. I'm not throwing that out. But we don't dumb down the scripture just to make people feel good. Just because people don't believe it or we don't believe it doesn't make it not true. Let's say, for whatever reason, I decide I no, wanna, I no longer want to believe in the law of gravity. Because it cramps my style. Okay? I mean, I want to fly. And so I just say, I'm not going to believe in gravity anymore. I'm going to make the law of gravity come, and I'm going to reward it to fit my desire. And so then I test my new theory. I go up here on the roof, and I get a running start that way, thinking I'm going to fly. There's not a person in this room that believes I'm going to fly. I'm going to end up out here in this parking lot somewhere. doesn't matter how much it changes, how much I don't believe it, the law of gravity still exists. doesn't matter how much we dumb down the message, the church dumbs down the message about God's word to try to make culture feel good about itself, it's still his word. And it's still true. And the consequences are still there, both good and bad. Just changing how we believe it doesn't change that reality. We're not doing people any favors, folks, if we don't share the truth with them. And we can tell them that. Hey, I'm sorry you don't like this, but I'm not doing you any favors if I tell you a lie. Right? When you share a lost message with a lost culture or society, they're still lost. Let's share the right message. Let's share the found message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, no matter what the world calls us. Worship team, why don't you come up? I kind of wrap this up. We must be willing to be all in, folks. God has given us his owner's manual. He's told us how to be all in. He's told us how to live life in this world apart from all of the stuff that's here. God wants a relationship with all of our life, not just part of it. When the rich young ruler approached Jesus, he asked Jesus, what do I lack for eternal life? And Jesus said, well, do this, do that, do this, do that. And the rich young ruler said, I've done all those things. And Jesus said, you're right, you have, but there's one thing you still lack. Go and sell some of your possessions that you feel comfortable with and then come and follow me when you're ready. Oh, that's not what it says, is it? It says, go and sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. Because you can't follow Jesus half-heartedly. We've got to follow him all the way. We've got to take him at his word. We've got to stand on the supremacy of his word. And we need to be good Bereans. Psalm 119, verses 102 to 106 say this. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws.
May that be said of us. Let's stand together and sing this next song that echoes that song.